The Foul Life. We're talking baseball today on the Foul Life podcast, but here's why. This man's a hunter, a fisher, a gatherer, a provider, a conservationist. Will the freaking thrill. Deuce Deuce, number 22, San Francisco Giants. Are you kidding me? He's on the podcast. Born and raised in New Orleans, all around the Cajun country, Louisiana. His college career speaks for itself at Mississippi State. Olympian, Olympic silver medalist. Silver Slugger Award in college, NCAA Player of the Year for Division I, All-American. Drafted out of high school to the Royals in the fourth round, said no. Goes to Mississippi State after his junior year there. Gets drafted in the first round, second overall pick to the San Francisco Giants. And what a career. Six-time All-Star, Gold Glove winner, Silver Slugger Award winner, NLCS MVP. Um, You name it. This man has done it. He was a team leader in San Francisco for years. First baseman. His swing is iconic. One of the sweetest swings in the history of the game. And he's here talking baseball, hunting, competition, no participation wards, how to adapt, how to make adjustments, how to cook duck, how to cook wild hogs. This man does it all. I love Will Clark. I have since I was a kid. I've looked up to him forever. I'm proud to call this man a freaking friend. Will the thrill. Thank you for being here, my man. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is brought to you by the one and only Martinez Gun Club. Check out Martinez Gun Club when you're in California, when you want to sharpen up your shooting skills. Will and I touch on how much he learned at Martinez Gun Club shooting with Blake and everybody out there. You got to practice sporting clays, five stand skeet. You got to practice and know what you're doing with the shotgun. And that's exactly why we lean on Martinez Gun Club every time we're in the Bay Area, the East Bay of California. Thank you to Blake and his family for always rolling out the red carpet for us. Today's episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Flask Cap. Have you seen them? Have you used them? Do you have the big one? You got the little one? You got the Matic 6, the Matic 9? Just look at the innovation here, the fun button. Six ounces, nine ounces of your favorite spirit up top, your ice and your mixer down below. You know on boats you don't want to take glass. A lot of beaches now don't let you take glass on them. That's why you can pour your favorite spirit in the top of the Matic lid, secure it tightly, and then just with one press of that button, dispense a one-ounce shot into your mixer and ice in the bottom, shake it up, and boom. You got your spirits you need for the day. Be responsible, please. That is what Flask Cap is all about, is responsibility. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by Thorough Good Boots. We wear them. The knee boots, the work boots, made in America, Wisconsin, United States of America. We rely on them. They're rubber boots. They're neoprene. We're in them in turkey season, dove season. I just wore them yesterday. I'm getting ready to wear them in blue wing teal season next week in South Texas. They are built for the American hunter, the American worker, men and women. Thank you, Thoroughgood Boots, for your dedication and your passion, your service, and all of your products and your dedication to excellence. We truly appreciate the partnership. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by Light Pipe Technology, the one and only high his shooting systems. Mr. Phil Howe, the entire crew in Laramie, Wyoming. We depend on high-vis sites on our handguns, our shotguns, our turkey guns. We truly want to make sure that we give ourselves the best opportunity to hit our target. And that's why high-vis is so incremental to our success. Low light conditions, low, I'm talking low ceilings, foggy conditions, sun's not even up yet, or during the middle of the day with a bluebird sky, they have the right light pipe technology site to fit you. Learn about them at highvissites.com on all of the social media platforms at high-vis sites. And you can see them exclusively on the Foul Life television, Aaron, right now on the Outdoor Channel. We rely on high-vis sites 
Insights. Today's episode, last but not least, is also brought to you by our friends and family at Mojo Outdoors. Mr. Terry Demon, we used the doves yesterday. You ain't shooting doves if you're not shooting them over Mojo. I'm just telling you, they work like ducks. That flash gets them every time. I can't wait to have the teal in the water next week down at Rocky Point Candles with Mr. Steve Biggers. I'm going to be down there at the one and only Terry Demon, the owner, the founder of Mojo Outdoors. They have changed the way we duck hunt dry fields, river bottoms, sloughs, marshes. I'm not saying you need them all the time, but they are an unbelievable tool to have in your arsenal. Check out all the offerings at mojooutdoors.com. All of their e-callers for predator hunting, their turkey decoys, everything they have for dove hunting, all of their different species and elite series for puddle ducks and divers. Their goose flags, we use them all. They have unbelievable brand new flashers out on the market right now. Mojo's Outdoors, another presenting sponsor of the Foul Life Podcast. We got double deuce number 22, San Francisco Giants, Hall of Famer. His jersey was retired. It's up on the wall with Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and Orlando Cepeda and Mel Ott and the great Barry Bonds. Number 22 is now retired at the home of the San Francisco Giants in the Bay. Will Clark is on the Foul Life Podcast. I hope you all enjoy. So I'm going to hit you with a couple things. Like I was, it's kind of a small world in this space. Um, Blake Fahmy, does this name ring a bell? I know Blake well. Blake uh, shoots at Martinez Gun Club, and uh, he's hit me up for a few tickets here and there. And then he told me literally last year, he said that Ricky Henderson is taking up shooting, and Ricky wants to take me on. And I started laughing. I'm like, uh, tell him I'll, I'll take him for a grand and I'll spot him 10 targets. (laughs) (laughs) And so needless to say, Ricky ain't shot with me yet. (laughs) Now I, I, Ricky came on his very first duck hunt with myself and my good friend, rock Merlot. It was actually a speckle belly and snow goose hunt last year. And, um, he loves it. Like he's, he, there's pictures of him yesterday. Him and Blake were up dove hunting with my buddies in California yesterday, but that's, that's kind of a, the athleticism that it takes to be a good shotgunner, a lot of it, I don't know if you would agree to this or not, Will, is that a lot of it could directly relate back to learning eye-hand coordination and the mechanics of a baseball swing. Is that fair to say? Without a shadow of a doubt, you hit the nail on the head. So uh, when I was in San Francisco, (laughs) I was only about eh, maybe about 10 miles away from the Peninsula uh, Gun and Rod Club. And I would literally shoot four or five times a week. I'd, I'd go through, I don't know, over the course of a major league baseball season, I'd go through 40 or 50,000 rounds. And the reason being, it is exactly the same as hitting a baseball. You have a target that is moving and you have to judge where it's going to wind up to make contact. Same exact thing about shooting a shotgun, whether it be at foul or whether it be at clay targets. So that hand-eye coordination that you're talking about, I bought into it full bore. I've, I've always been a shotgun uh, man. I grew up doves and ducks with my dad's in the bayou. And uh, till this day, I shoot a ton. When you When you start talking about one of the things I want to discuss real quick that that I learned in baseball a long time ago in is the head position of a batter and being able to visually accept the ball into the different platforms that it can be presented in from 
a pitcher that's literally on an incline throwing down at you and he can manipulate the ball in so many different ways to change planes, change directions, change speeds with the same exact arm speed. He can change the speed of the ball with the circle change. Um, how important are, are both, that's a long way to get to this question, but both eyes open and shooting to me is everything, right? I'm a left-handed hitter and I was right eye dominant, but I'm a lefty shooter looking down the rib of my gun. And if I close my right eye, my vision went out the door until last year when I got lens extraction surgery, Will. But how important is both eyes open in baseball as, as applied to both eyes open with shotgunning? Uh, one in the same. Uh, I am exactly the same guy as you are. I am left-handed, but right-eye dominant. Uh, when I was 12 or 13, my dad switched me over to shooting right-handed since I was right-eye dominant, and my shooting improved dramatically. And, uh, you know, keeping both eyes open, whether it be a shotgun or whether it be, you know, watching a baseball, it is one of those things where you need to see a moving target you need to see it extremely well. So both eyes open is probably the best way to go about it. Instead of closing one or closing the other, then you lose field of vision, okay? Then on top of that, shooting waterfowl, doves, whatever it might be, are very similar to what you talked about with baseball. If it's a breaking ball, it changes planes. If it's a fastball, sometimes it's sinking and changing planes. Same thing when you have a duck or a dove coming in. Boom, you shoot. And if you go to the second bird, that second bird has changed planes. He's going somewhere else. And so you have to adjust. So I think it's very, very, very similar. And you and I are on the same boat there. When you start thinking about um, the strength now behind, and, and this is kind of, this is, I want people to understand how much power, when you saw Will Clark standing at the plate, you didn't look like a buff guy. You didn't look like you'd been in the weight room for 10 hours a day as a kid, okay? You were slender. You had a tall stance. You almost were too tall the way that I was taught to hit. But the, the not, and I'm not saying you're too tall. Please don't take that that way. Uh, when I watched it, I'd be like, man, Will Clark stands so tall when he hits. There's no crouch. Like you'd see Ricky get down the crouch. You'd see a lot of hitters get down into that crouch. But you and Griffey, you guys stood so tall with the bat. But my question is, in shooting, in two, core power, ass power, hip power, quadricep power, um, the, the, the training that goes into how hard you hit a baseball with how easy you make it look. But when you hear the contact that you make and the impact of the bat hitting the ball, it absolutely blows my mind. When you sent me that video the other night of your garage work, your yeah. T work, I was blown away by how hard you hit the baseball. And that's a lot to do with gunning too, with how you can get out in front of it, keep your core moving. I'm not saying that you have, you don't have to be the toughest man or the strongest man in the world to be a good shot gunner, but there is something that is implied with your core, your hips and that entire section of your body. Cause I cannot believe how much power you can generate with first, with first, uh, you know, the, the first impression that I get is there's no way this skinny dude can hit the ball that hard. Right. Did so, you ever hear that? Yeah, you know, I, I heard that a lot. And you made you made a, a great, you know, combination of myself and Griffey. All right. Both of us were six one, six two, right around there. But what we did was we stayed tall to use our leverage. And so what I am doing as a baseball player is I am attacking the baseball. I'm trying to catch it clean and I'm trying to catch it absolutely from point A to point B as quick as possible and catch it clean, let the rest of it do its work. And you mentioned Ricky, guys who 
squat down. Guys who get low, they have to stay low because if they come up, they start dropping that back shoulder. They're up onto the ball, a lot of swings and misses. That's a lot what's going on nowadays with the current players. We're having to try to fix that right now with the current players. Same kind of thing in shooting. You have to be have a good foundation. You have to be, you know, strong. You have to be balanced. Another thing that that happens with a shotgun is lean into it. If you lean into it, you absorb the recoil a lot better throughout your whole body. And for me personally, you know, the baseball swing and the shooting swing were so similar. And, you know, I did both of them from a kid. I do both of them today till this day. And I absolutely love both sports. I think that uh, I absolutely love both sports. And I love the fact that you hunt. And I've known that you've been a hunter forever. I'm so honored to have you on here. And people will always hear me talk about my fascination with your swing. And when I was playing baseball at UNLV with um, after one of your teammates, Matt Williams, um, I would talk to Matt about you all the time during, you know, he'd come to Vegas before he'd report to Scottsdale and spring training. Um, But think about this. If you're in Louisiana where you grew up or you're in Arkansas, sometimes I've been in what they call stilt blinds to where you're up off the ground. And when you're shooting, you're actually leveraged above the decoying birds okay i'm a duck hunter i know you you hunt a lot of different things but i know you love waterfowl so when you're shooting down on birds it's almost like what do they say fish in a barrel i mean it's so easy now now you apply that to when we're talking about ricky being crouched and ricky cannot come up and be successful if he tries to stand straight up it's almost like a hitch. If your hands are yeah. here and you drop them all the way here, you still yeah. got to get them back up here. So why are you hitching in the first place? But when you're in a duck blind and you're crouched down and you, and I say, get them and me and you stand up, you're doing the exact same thing. You're coming up and you're, you're changing the entire plane of how you're viewing those ducks come in. So you're losing your leverage on those ducks in a lot of ways. So it takes a lot of training to be in a crouch position or in a ground blind position and using your core and your abs to sit up. And people think, oh, that's easy. People miss a lot of shots because they go to a sporting clays course, in my opinion, and they're on five stand or they're on trap or skeet or whatever, and they're not practicing all of the different positions they're going to be shooting in when it comes hunting season. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. And, and, you know, the one thing that, that you learn from baseball is – you know, no matter how fast the ball is coming in, you have time to think. All right. And it's very, very similar to, and especially in the layout blind situations, you know, you pop the top open, you come up, you're sitting there and there's, you know, let's say 20 birds right in front of you. It's, it's almost better instead of to come up, boom, one of them numbers, come up, take your time, regroup, pick out a single bird, get him and then work from there. And doing that, I think, ups the accuracy, ups the kill ratio, the whole works. As far as shooting in different, you know, venues, whether it be, like you said, five stand, whether it be in a layout line, or whether it be in a stilt line shooting down, okay, take your time. One of the things about being high, okay, when you're in that stilt line is instead of shooting at the birds that are down, shoot at the birds that are eye level. Because if you shoot at those that are eye level, First off, as soon as you squeeze off a round or two, here come the birds from the bottom and they're right back in your plane of view. When you start thinking about, I'm, I'm, I'm staying with this baseball comparison analogy. You, you have 
handgun shooting, you have three gun shooting, you have rifle shooting, you have muzzle loader shooting, you have shotgun shooting. There's a lot of times that I've encountered shooters that are very proficient, laying prone, breathing, ballistics, reading the windage, the drop, the bullets, the powder, everything. And then they get a shotgun in their hands and they're just like, man, I can't, I can't hit water if I fall out of a boat. And then I I watch these boxers. I saw a boxer that's considered a quote unquote boxer. Now he's a YouTube and I hate each their own, but I watched him get in a batting cage in Florida on, on a video. And I'm talking 45 mile an hour L screen BP with slowing it down big time. Yeah. Yeah. And he looked like he was not athletic at all. <laughs> I've seen, you know, you I've know, seen the greatest, the greatest athletes in the world get in the batting cage and hold a baseball bat. And you're like, are you really yeah. an athlete? Hitting a baseball, a round yeah. object with another round object is absolutely the hardest thing to do in sports. I'm not saying that beating Michael Phelps is in my future. I'm not saying that I can mountain climb with the best of them. And I can surely not wakeboard with the best of them, but I could learn how to wakeboard. Those wakeboarders. I, I, I completely, I completely. You see where I'm going it. with this? You see where I'm going with I, this? I see exactly where you're going with this because I encounter, I encounter this a lot. When you are on a pro level, you appreciate guys in the other pro sports for how good they are. All right. Um, to watch, you know, somebody try to pick up a baseball bat, as you said, round ball, round bat, and hit it square. Trying to do that, even the best athletes in the world who are in other sports try to come over to baseball, and it and it really is hysterical. I mean, I watch some of these big football players come in there, and I mean, like you said, you know, throwing BP forty five miles an hour, fifty miles an hour, you know, stuff that high schoolers hit, and and I mean, it's hysterical watching them. Here's another one for you. I mean, Michael Jordan, the greatest ever in basketball you know, tried to become a baseball player and couldn't make it past double A. And matter of fact, he should have been in a ball. They, they gave him double A just so, just so he could, uh, you know, I guess you want to say get the notoriety, but he couldn't hold a jock to some of these kids, you know, that are coming out of the Dominican and stuff like that, that I see now. A hundred percent. He couldn't. And on the basketball court, Will Clark, here, I'm going to go somewhere with this. And just, I, I, I was in Argentina shooting um, ducks three years ago, the year before COVID with some of my mutual friends, I'm not going to say any names, George Thompson from Benelli USA. And he told me soccer players are the greatest athletes in the world. Before you talk, Will, I want you to hear me out. I said, are you out of your freaking mind? I said, you put me on a soccer field right now at 215 pounds. I will dribble that ball down that field and I will cross shoot. I will kick it into the goal. I could dribble it on my foot. I could kick it. I could pass it. I could do all the things they can do at their level, nowhere near it. Now you put me on a football field and Brett Favre throws me a pass down the field. I'll run a nine pattern. I'm going to catch that ball. I might not be able to do it with Dion covering me, but I can catch that ball. I'll run an eight pattern across the middle of the field. And I'm going to catch that ball. I could set up for a tackle. You put me on the basketball court. I'm going to be able to dribble and I'm going to be able to shoot, fade away, lay up, fall through. My, I told George, Will, I said, if you took an Olympic style event and you took the top 10 athletes off out of every sport and you put them in this, you're going to have some football players that can go and swim across the pool. No problem. But those baseball players are going to be able to swim too. If you yeah. go put them all in the basketball court. They might be able to dribble, but the baseball players are going to dribble too and lay up. Now you put them all in that batting cage and now you're going to go, Oh my God, 
This is my point is that baseball players, as athletic as you are, can keep up with those guys. You might not be at their level professionally, but if you take everybody and put them into an Olympic style caliber event, they're not, those guys are going to get into the batting cage and it's going to be separated right there. I, I, you know, I go back to what we just talked about. I mean, I've seen it, I've seen it in person and, you know, you look at exactly the, the people that you're talking about basketball, how many games they play, you know, per season, you know, football, how many games they play, play every, every Saturday, every Sunday week off. All right. Soccer, how many games they play and how many days off they got, you know, and then you look at baseball, you play every day, every day. And some of the little nagging injuries get to be bigger injuries because you play in every day. They don't get a chance to heal. And so to have to deal with that over the course of a long season, talking about eight months, eight months of playing every day. There's a reason that it's this long marathon is because you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days and you got to keep that heel really even. But to get back to your point, you know, like you said, you know, you can do a layup, you know, you can, you can catch a pass, you know, you can kick a ball down there. You know, you hand a baseball bat to a soccer player who never uses his hands. And he's like, you know, one of them numbers. That's my point. I'm not saying that I could keep up with any badass football player, basketball, soccer, any of them. I know, I know where I stand and all that, but if you put me on a ping pong table, I can play ping pong. You yeah. take the top ping pong players in the world. They just cannot do what Will Clark does with the bat, even the fun fundamentals. So when I, you're, I completely when, understand. And, and that's where you and I, that's where you and I were talking about earlier. I mean, you know, those people that are extremely good in their sport, I am a fan because I know how hard it is to be that good in that sport. But yet when you switch it over and you get into my sport, then you got to take it to a new level. The guys who are on the major league level, they are phenomenal baseball players. I mean, phenomenal to get to that point. I mean, they have to be extremely talented. Then you take the gentlemen who are the top 5% and you go, Oh my God, what these guys can do with a baseball bat. And, you know, that's like, you know, the video I sent you in the garage, you know I mean? I'm probably going right there. I'm probably going at maybe 70%, maybe 75%. And all I'm doing is just catching it clean. And you hear that contact. It's like, it's like somebody hitting, hitting something with a, with a two by four. I mean, it's like, wow. I mean, whoop. and you go, Oh my God, that man knows what he's doing right there. Have you ever seen anything with the confidence that you had to have to get to the point that you did in baseball, which we're going to get into. Um, but you also have been around a lot of people that have the same amount of confidence to get to that level. You've been around people in different professional sporting leagues. You're friends with a lot of different professional athletes in their own respected sports, both men and female in all of your years. And I'm throwing you a curveball here. No pun intended. Have you ever seen anything that brings out the confidence in people, both male and female? as the shooting sports, when they pick that gun up and they hit that first target or they, they feel the squeeze of that trigger um, and the, the day might be over and you're having a cold beer and they're talking about what they just experienced. Have you ever seen anything that brings the confidence that shooting sports do? I, you know what? I, I don't know from the other sports, but it's very similar to a rookie, you know, coming into the major leagues and having its first like really good game, like a, a two for three and driving a few runs, you know, that kind of thing. 
You know, you just see this wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, you know, smile and how their face lights up. And it's very similar to the shooting sports. When you have a newbie coming into the shooting sports and you give them a little pointer or two, like we would on the baseball field, you give the rookies pointers and stuff like that. You give a newbie shooting tips and then all of a sudden they go from missing everything to hitting a few targets and they're like, it's almost like golf. You know, you hit that one good shot in golf and you're like, oh, I want to play again tomorrow and do that again. It's the same thing with the shooting sports. You know, you hit a few targets and, and you get in that rhythm and you're like, oh, I want to do this again. Yeah, I think that the rhythm is everything. Now, when you start talking about rhythm, tell me, and I don't know this, I don't know the answer to this, but where, where what was the worst slump you ever encountered as a professional? Did you have an extended uh, slump? Did no, you? I mean, did, you, you, I never really got into those like 0 for 40s or anything like that. I was probably maybe one or two for 20 and then, and then I'd get out of it, you know, and then you go a little bit longer and then you get back into a 0 for 12 and then you come out of it. You know, that's when, when you're a guy who hits 300, you know, you don't have extended slumps or dry spells. And the one thing that I did as a hitter is the same exact thing as I do as a shooter. I want to keep my rhythm. All right. I want to stay fluid and I, I don't want it to be herky-jerky. And so when I shoot, there are two things that I do. When I mount the gun, I make sure my head is down on the stock. I do not want to, to mount my gun and go, oh, one of them numbers, because I'll miss it over the top all the time. As long as I got the gun mounted correctly, I got my head down on the stock, if I miss a thousand out of a thousand times, it's because I was behind the bird. I need to increase my lead. And so then I just readjust, increase my lead, and wham, I'll drill a bird. So you're applying the slump part of it in, in shooting a 1,000 out of a 1,000. Obviously, you're not going to go very long into a slump in shooting either because of what we call making adjustments. As a professional baseball player, Will Clark, coming up in the 80s, let's get, you're a fourth-round draft pick out of high school to the Royals which is hard to pass up. I mean, that's freaking legit, legit fourth round. In my opinion, I would have liked to go in the top 50 rounds. Okay. But then you go to Mississippi state, then you go number one, number, number two in the draft in the first round of the 1985 draft. You are the best college baseball player in the country. This is no slouch here. Like this is an award that's huge to me because NCAA division one baseball is tough. Okay, there's a lot of great players that have won that that have never even turned it into a great major league career. But you got to know how to make adjustments when it comes to hitting a baseball or it could even turn over onto the defensive side of the field. What what was it about you in your childhood, in your athletic ability or in your sports? Was it because you were an outdoorsman, because you knew how to adjust in the outdoors and you understood how to make a fire? You knew how to decoy ducks. You knew how to bait a rod. You knew how to, you knew how to like do the stuff that you're, you, that you're the, the men that came before you and the women that came before you were teaching you. Did you learn adjustments at an unage because of the outdoors and you could apply those? It was, I'm not saying that that taught you how to play baseball, but your discipline and your ability to adjust, was that learned in the outdoors? Because that's the impression I get. I agree a thousand percent. You know, it had to do with, you know, learning from your elders, you know, trying to avoid, you know, the mistakes that they made by the lessons that they're teaching you. And 
as you get older, it's making the adjustments on the fly. I mean, so, you know, if I miss a pitch when I'm up at home plate, you know, I've practiced it so long that I know what adjustment I need to make. I, I make that adjustment the next pitch, whereas a modern day player might take three or four at bats to make that adjustment. And so these are the kind of things that we talk about in the clubhouse, but it is a learned skill. And you are exactly right. It had a lot to do with me being in the outdoors, hunting and fishing. And, uh, you know, I mean, you throw over there and then all of a sudden you see a swirl over there. You hurry up real in, throw over there, you catch the fish. I mean, it's that kind of adjustment. And it's the same thing in shooting sports, same thing in the baseball arena. Why do you, if you had to tell a person the number one thing you like about the shooting sports, what is it that draws you to it? Is it, is it because I, I would, I would guess that it's not your competitiveness. I know that we, that you could beat a lot of people out on the, yeah. the sporting clay range. Okay. You yeah. could smoke me, but it, it, what is it that draw? What is the number one reason that draws you to it? That because you are a competitive person, you want to win. And yeah. I know that you want to compete against your, you're competing against yourself a lot in sporting clays because yes. a lot of people aren't at your level until you get into big time competition. What is it that draws you to the shooting sports? The, the first thing about the shooting sports is the practice. I, I enjoy getting in a rhythm and, and, you know, if you're on a baseball field, dead centering that baseball, I, I enjoy getting in the rhythm and dead centering those targets. The first and foremost part about me shooting is I owe it to the game animal that I'm pursuing. I absolutely love wild game. I love ducks, doves, deer meat, hog meat, you alligator, you name it down the line. I want to be extremely proficient to where there is no suffering on their end. I want to accomplish what I need to do to get them on the ground so that I can put them on the grill or in the oven or whatever it is. And the, the more you shoot and the better you get and not having cripples and, and stuff run off on you and stuff like that, the better the game meat tastes, as you well know. Did you have a, a problem with this mentality in today's world of social media and how everybody's business is everybody's business? which I don't like, but we can get into that on another talk. Did you have an issue with where you played? Um, I would imagine that with how liberal the Bay area is, that was it an issue back then? Because I know it is today. I yeah. know that I know that it's shunned down on big time today, even though some of the greatest duck hunting in the West United States is the Sioux Sin Marsh, the East Bay, the San Francisco Bay. Did, did, was it an issue back then where you couldn't really come out and be you because you were a hunter fisher in that area? You know, I, I think that, believe it or not, it had to deal with uh, my popularity and success in baseball because it was pretty well known that I was an outdoorsman. And like some of the first people that I met in San Francisco were from the East Bay. They hunted and fished their whole lives. Till this day, they are my best friends on the, on the West Coast. And exactly, we hunted exactly the places that you just said. Excuse me, the Sassoon Marsh, Fairfield, District 10, Marysville, places like that that had unbelievable duck hunting. And when you get outside of the city, you wind up seeing a lot of people that are exactly like me and you and love being outdoors and being in the shooting sports. 
to be who you were, um, you're drafted above Barry Larkin. You're drafted before Barry Bonds. You're drafted before people that, along with yourself, are iconic, have legendary careers, okay? Like, I would love, you know, I do want to talk to you about the asterisk air and what it meant um, and and how people such as yourself, it drives me nuts you're not in the Hall of Fame. It, and I, we don't need to get into it because it is what it is. But to hit 300 and to win all those awards and to shoulder a team is saying a lot about a career, in my opinion. It is a Hall of Fame career, no doubt. So with your popularity, with what you achieved, did you, were you ever as arrogant as you ever be? Did you ever have to check yourself wheel and be like, man, I gotta, I gotta chill the F out on my, on my ego. This is getting to me because a small town country boy from the new Orleans that went to Mississippi state, you started getting success at a pretty early age, high school, college, all American drafted out of high school first, then all American, then golden spikes award winner, then a first round draft pick. again. Is it easy to let it get out of hand and be like, Man, I don't care what mom and dad taught me. I am Will the freaking thrill. Did you ever have to? Did you ever have to check yourself? Um, you know what? I I really I really don't think so because you know being from the south and and being you know kind of put back in your place every now and then by by people that were around me. Um, you know I I really didn't have that. Um, when I went to college, oh my goodness, everything clicked. I mean, it clicked, and I was on fire but then when you get into pro ball that is a different animal and so have a good year in a ball after i got drafted and then that fall went to instructional league and kind of tore the cover off the ball come into spring training next year i was not supposed to be uh, on the san francisco giants i was supposed to be in triple a and same thing tore the cover off the ball all of a sudden the giants gave me a job So now I am in the major leagues. I'm 21, 22 years old. You know, I mean, it's just wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. Then two months into my rookie season, I break my elbow. And so now I got to go on a DL for two months. I come back. I still got a broken elbow, but now I got to figure out a way to swing the baseball bat. Day after that season's over, I have surgery. So now you fast forward to 1987, which is my first technically full year, not on a DL and stuff. So you got to reprove yourself over again so that nobody takes your job. And so I kept that mentality where I wanted to keep proving myself. And that way, I also kept improving myself. So it never got to the point where I was like, ah, one of those numbers. I knew who I was. I knew who my teammates were. And I knew that. When it came to that late inning situation, seventh, eighth, ninth inning of the game with the runners on base, I knew who I wanted to be up at home plate. I knew that I wanted to have that stick in my hands and let's go, boys. We're going to win this ball game. Who's the best friend giant you ever played with? Let me guess. Gosh dang. I'm going to go with Kurt Manwaring. Oh, nice, nice call right there. So, so Kurt was our, our catcher. He got called up 80, 88, 89, 90, right in there. And, uh, you know, he and I are good friends still this day. Uh, he, he's, he's really, a, really a super person, intense individual. And I liked him because of that reason. Uh, Matt Williams and I, uh, Matt came down to New Orleans. He spent the whole off season with me. 
we hit every day and Matt wound up making the major league team the next year and staying for a unbelievable major league career. He was, he was absolutely a stud. Um, Robbie Thompson was my second baseman. He and I spent eight years together on the right side of the infield and just basically held down the fort. And let's see, uh, we had Kevin Mitchell, the boogie bear. I mean, he was our MVP in 89. He was our four hole hitter for three or four years there and just an absolute treat to be around. And then in 93, Barry Bonds comes in and he's my teammate and an MVP in 93. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to be around some unbelievable giants um, to, you know, pick one. Um, I'm not going to do that because they were all my teammates and they were all special to me. Uh, to go back to kind of what you were talking about before about the Hall of Fame and all that sort of stuff, we just got through with my Jersey retirement. So they retired number 22 uh, this past July 30th, and I am now the 12th num number in the whole history of the Giants organization to have your number retired. I mean, you look up on that board and you look who's up there. It's Bill Terry, Mel Ott. Carl Hubble, Willie Mays, uh, Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda, Gaylord Perry, Juan Marichal, John McGraw, Christy Mathewson, Barry Bonds, and Will Clark. It's like, wow. You know what? Hey, look, I, I would love to be in the Hall of Fame. I'm not going to lie to you. I would love to be in the Hall of Fame. That is not why I got in this sport. I got in this sport for the competition. And it's the same thing for me with the shooting sports. It is the competition, whether it be myself or sporting plays, whatever it might be. And uh, till this day, if there is something that is not competitive in my life, I do not do it. Should Barry Bonds be in the Hall of Fame? Without a shadow of a doubt. Is he the greatest hitter of all time? By far. God, me and you're like brothers. These guys, you know, these guys are going to have the little asterisks behind their names and all that. Uh, me personally, I don't give a rat's ass. You still got to hit the damn thing. You and he got one pitch a game. You got one pitch a game. You, you got to hit the thing square all the time, and you got to get that thing 400 feet away. You, I mean, it is hard to do that. And is do the, it 756 he, times? Come is on, he the man. Greatest you, is he the greatest? I Like the way that he would – he led in intentional walks, walks all the time. Like he would yeah. never see that many pitches to hit. And all of a sudden, oh, there it is. Randy Johnson, 98 on the inner half. Just turn on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it was amazing. And, and I've, I, you know, Barry and I have compared notes. You know, we, we spent many a plane flight in the back of the plane, you know, having a beer and talking shop and all that. And, you know, the, the one thing that I've, I've talked to him about here lately since now, you know, we're both retired and all that is the fact that exactly what you just said, how do you go through seeing 12 pitches and, you know, not, not anywhere near the strike zone, not getting a chance to swing the bat, not, nothing like that. And then all of a sudden the first strike you see whack 450 feet, you go, yeah, dude, how do you do that? You know, I mean, it really is. I mean, it really is. You take, like I said before, you take that 5% that are, Unfreaking believable athletes, and then you got the best, and that's who he is. He's the best. If it's too personal, tell me to shut up. But a lot of people said he wasn't the greatest teammate. Is he a sweet man, and was he a good teammate for Will Clark? Uh, Barry and I, Barry and I got along well, but 
if Barry did not like you, ooh, you were in trouble. He was a freight train. He could run over the top of you. And, and, you know, it's well, well versed, you know, he and Jeff Kent did not have a, a good relationship. He and the press did not have a good relationship, um, you know, because, you know, they wanted him to expound on things and tell them what he was looking for and, and how he went about his craft and all that. And he wouldn't tell them. And so there were a lot of people that got their little feelings hurt because of that reason. And, and that's why not only he, but that's why I didn't do the Hall of Fame ballot thing. Do you, is it true that you could never get voted on again, Will? No, you can get voted on. It's called a veterans committee. So, so you, every, every about three or four years, there's a class and it'll be like the seventies players. It'll be the eighties players. It'll be the nineties players. And there's a veterans committee and it's 16 members and it changes every, every draft. I mean, every, every year it changes. And out of those 16 gentlemen, you got to get, 12 of those guys to say you're a hall of famer and then you get inducted in a hall of fame. So like last year, uh, Lee Smith, you know, got in there uh, a year or two before was goose Gossage. You know, those guys did not get voted by the press in the, in the hall of fame voting, but the ex players put them in there. So I know that you didn't get in the game for that reason, but did, do you, do you keep your fingers crossed that there's still an opportunity someday? You know what? Now that my number's up on the wall in San Francisco, I could, I could give a rat's ass less. That Where is, were you? I told everybody in my speech, I said, that is my Hall of Fame. And that's that's all that matters to me. You know, like I said, if Cooperstown comes calling later on, partner, I'm going to really enjoy that. But as of right now, I have my Hall of Fame. Where were you standing when the earthquake hit? I was in Centerfield. I had just got through running a sprint out to Centerfield. And I was walking back towards the right field line and it sounded like those F-15s flying over. So I like looked up and right when I looked up, the light towers were going when I was like, Oh, this is not good. And I kind of stopped where I was and you could physically see the wave coming through the stadium. And, uh, you know, after everything sort of settled down, there was a big, you know, like applause. Everybody's, everybody's like, ah, uh, you know, welcome to California kind of thing and all that. And by the time I got back to the dugout, uh, police radios were going off. And a few minutes later, you know, they came up to me and said, hey, look, the marina is on fire. The Bay Bridge uh, has collapsed the section. The San Mateo Bridge got some stuff going on. We got structural damage here in the stadium. They said, we're not playing this game. As close as you were to the city, was it emotionally draining for you to see it going through that? Because that was a that was a big time deal of that, especially the freeway, in my opinion, of seeing what was the people suffering. It yeah. was, it, did, was it something that you guys really had to rally behind and come together as a team? Because the city kind of lost, everybody was like in detriment after that earthquake hit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so after, you know, after the earthquake and, you know, next few days after that, we stayed in town and, you know, we worked out at Candlestick, but then we also went into the city and helped out and served meals and stuff like that to, you know, the, the people who, you know, lost, lost, uh, you know, homes and buildings and all that sort of stuff. So we went out and serviced the community, the Oakland A's, they went to Phoenix and went and played their triple uh, A team down there. So, you know, Hey, look, it, it was what it was. The, the one thing to, and you even mentioned it, 
you know, that freeway over there in Oakland, thank God the World Series was going on right then and there. Because if everybody wasn't either at the ballpark or at home sitting in front of the TV waiting for those games to come on, that freeway, when it collapsed, it had been twenty or 30,000 dead on that freeway. It would just been full of traffic. Everybody was getting home. Yep. What do you think in... If you were to write a cookbook, this is, I, I want to start getting into, in, into your uh, outdoor livelihood. Cajun country food is some of my favorite, um, but I'm very critical of it because I've got to be around some of what I consider just unbelievable Cajun chefs. Are you a, a Cajun fan? Do you think it's overrated? Because some people from Louisiana, from the Cajun country, tell me, I don't care if I ever see another crawfish again or an etouffee or a jambalaya. <laughs> they say all it is is butter and cream and boom. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? I love it. But maybe it is more of a delicacy to me. Do you love the flair of where you were born? Do you love Cajun food? And if you had to start off with your number one, what is your favorite Cajun food to go to? Uh, I do love Cajun food. Born and raised with it. I love not only every part of it. I love the spicy side of it, uh, but not too spicy. If I had to start off with anything, and this is, this is coming from way back when, I mean, when I started hunting and fishing, dove breasts wrapped in bacon and duck gumbo. Those two, you, you put those two in front of me, you can serve anything else. I'm eating those two right there. Do you cook your own? Do you yes. cook duck? Okay. Yes. So, People look at dove and they're like, all right, it's dove. Well, dove's a different bird than a quail or a chucker or a pheasant or a grouse, whatever we're talking about. What, what, what do you marinate them? Do you brine them? Do you sear? Do you, you, do you dry rub them? Nope. I go right after them. Chunk them song guns in there. Here we go. So, kinda, is it, you know, I mean, everything down here, everything down here, I mean, you know, especially ducks, unless you're in the bayou. Ducks down here are corn fed or rice fed. So they, they taste extremely good, especially, and especially like here in another week, we got teal season starting up and I'm going to be hunting them in the rice fields, you know? So, I mean, these, these teal are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, doves, just a, a nice grain eater. And, you know, they're so small and so delicate. They're fabulous. I love different presentations. I watch all of your cooking demonstrations. I like your take on things. Um, we were not, and, and I guess I grew up in a different era where we were allowed to shoot a lot more. So I was not a big duck plucker. I breast everything. And so I work with pretty much the straight breast meat. I don't do a lot of ducks with skin on. And that's where, it, you know, if you and I shared hunting camp, that's where I'd love for you to, you know, put a plate in front of me with some skin on, I'd be like, Oh, here we go. Yeah. I think, I think it's a great way to talk about to each their own kind of deal of the infighting and hunting. And a lot of the insults that we get is, is that we don't know what we're doing when they see us taking the skin off and just taking the breast meat out. And I'm like, look, man, there's a lot of ways to cook duck. Okay. You can yeah. do it your own way. Do you? Yeah. I'm just kind of showing you an out of the box way of how we do it and, and right. something that I enjoy just because I took that off of there. doesn't mean that I don't use the skin or the fat for something else or render whatever, 
But I think it's a great point to bring up of like how unorthodox you can truly be with wild game. The pictures you've been sending me make my mouth water, first of all, but I love learning. I'm like, oh man, I like that idea. I really like that idea. I want to, I want to implement my own. I want to learn from Will and then I want to put my own spin on it a little bit. And I think, I think that that's, what's key in being coachable, not, you know, not to go back to your baseball career, but to be a sponge and to be teachable and coachable is a huge asset in life and not to be like, Oh man, you don't know what you're doing. Cause you're not taking the skin off with the duck breast. I'm like, I do know what I'm doing. I'm just doing a different recipe, man. Chill out. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I thoroughly, uh, you know, and then that goes back to, you know, watching you cook and watching you cook on TV and then also on your videos and stuff like that. It's, I am a fan. I mean, here's, here's somebody that really enjoys what they're doing. It's really interesting. And as much as I love to eat wild game, I'm like glued to it. All right. Here's another thing too. You know, I am a pro in my sport. I am very good in my sport. You're a pro in your sport. I, I'm fortunate enough to have not only one of my uncles who passed away, but then also one of my cousins is an executive chef. And he brings all kinds of new recipes to the, to the table. And uh, I mean, some of the stuff that he comes up with is phenomenal. Uh, I'll give you an example. We took, we took duck breasts and um, we filleted the meat off the bone. And he made a red wine and mushroom like reduction and served it over grits, almost like a shrimp and grits, except he made a duck and grits. Oh my God, was that delicious. That sounds another, unreal. Another thing that we've been doing here lately, not, not the big hogs, but the little, the, the kind of medium-sized hogs. We've been having a ton of a problem down there, as, as you guys do in California and, and everywhere else on the face of the planet. We pull the shoulders and the hinds off of the hogs, and I kind of leave the spine intact, pull the ribs off. So now you got the spine, and I bring it to my uh, processor, and he cuts me pork chops. And we've been doing a lot of wild hog pork chops, and my guys destroy them. Absolutely love them to death. Are you grilling them or are you slow cooking them? We're, we're grilling them, putting marks on them, and finishing them in the oven to keep the tenderness. Keep the tenderness. God, it sounds freaking good. On the, on the actual hunt, on, the, on your approach to hunting, how, how important is it to stress the respect of the resource and the compassion for the animals. You've, you alluded to it before about being a great, um, a great um, lover of the shooting sports. And one of your reasons was because you owe it to that animal. If you're going to take responsibility of pulling the trigger on him or her, Um, how important is it to have compassion will um, for everything down to a coyote? Because we know how devastating a coyote can be, but we grew our home. We built our homes in the coyote's land. I have a lot of compassion for animals and respect. How important is it as a leader that you've been your whole life and and people are influenced and intrigued by you? Is it to showcase that, that, that ideology that we really do care about the animals that we pursue? By far. I totally agree. Not, you know, I mean, and, and I'm fortunate enough to own my piece of property and I am a steward of the land. There are a lot. I mean, a lot of times I sit in a deer stand and I never pull a trigger. All right. I'm watching the animals. I'm saying, all right, that doe is with that fawn and I need them to, to go up together, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, in the South, you know, I live in Louisiana. There is a reason they call it the sportsman's paradise. 
There is so much stuff to shoot down here. There's all kinds of craziness going on. So, you know, I am not only a sportsman, I'm a conservationist. I am a steward of the land. Um, I'm also a steward of the forest. I mean, uh, on my property, we have pine trees. I manage my property for the trees and for the wildlife. So you combine all of this stuff together. And yes, I am going to pull the trigger because I love to eat wild game. I am going to pull the trigger, but there's a lot of times that I do not. And that is being a steward and a conservationist of the wildlife. I, could, I couldn't say it better myself, nor do I want to. I think you hit every nail on the head there. Um, I want you to talk to me about American pride real quick and and what it means to wear the shirt you are, Team USA shooting, a USA hat. Not just shooting, but you're an Olympic baseball medalist. Yeah. Um, you are a landowner in America. You own dirt in America. This is a big deal. They're not making any more of it, ladies and gentlemen. They're not making any more dirt. Okay, so when you hear the guys, Luke Bryan and Jordan Davis, I believe, sing about buying dirt, pretty good idea. Um, yeah. What does it mean, though, Will Clark, Will the Thrill? I'm still not done with that because I do want to get into that. But what does it mean to you to wake up every day and look back on your career, the opportunities that you have, your family, your property, your passion for life? When, I mean, when you and I were on the phone the other night, you, you gave me props because I was just doing a simple cookout with my family. And you're like, I freaking love that. And yeah. how important is it to our listeners to really, really care about who we are and where we live and the opportunities that can come about from passion and love and treating people with respect? Because that's what you've done. You've built a career that people look up to and you continue to give back. How important is it to be an American to you and to give back to this great country and to, to, to pass the advice along to somebody of like, Hey man, we got to take care of this place. We got to yeah. do better than what's going on. Yeah. How important is America to you, Will Clark? I, it's it's unbelievable how how important it is to me. I mean, you know, I was born and raised in a different time, and you know, a different set of circumstances. We we lived more off the land because uh, not only from the hunting side of things, but from the fishing side of things. Whatever we caught that week. Not only would it feed the family, but then my dad would turn around and sell it and make a few extra dollars for the family. So those kind of things framed who Will Clark is. Not only growing up and being an outdoorsman, but then when you get into baseball and you see that accountability and you see, you know, when you get that base hit and you win the ball game, and you turn around and you see your teammates going crazy and you see the fans going crazy. You're like, I'm not in this by myself. I'm in this as a whole and being an American and knowing what we have in this country and what other people don't have in other countries. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to be all for the USA. I was fortunate enough to play on the USA baseball team and I support United States athletes. This is one of them, the shooting sports. It's, it's, it's big to me. It's big to you. So guess what? I'm going to give them a few dollars and say, boys and girls, y'all have fun. How, when you 
when you look back at the actual career part of Will Clark and what you got to achieve, do you have any regrets or wish this would have happened kind of attitude? I know that you said during your speech in, in, in San Francisco about the number 22 being on that wall, which I cannot wait to see it. I hated that I couldn't be there because I was invited by Blake. I was invited by Jason Donnelly, another mutual friend of ours, and I couldn't make it. I was doing a, a, some kind of hunting show somewhere. Um, I was actually doing the Delta Waterfowl National Convention, speaking nice. for real, do, speaking nice. for a couple brands in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, what is there anything that you would have changed about this? Is a historic uh, career in a know, sport. Dear, in a hold on, you got to you got to make money playing a little boy sport that I used to wear corduroys with my bangs <laughs> hanging out of my hat in 1982 Little League, dreaming, yeah. dreaming of being a major leaguer. Yep. I mean, what a freaking career. Is there anything that you would have changed? You know, I mean, I, I actually have gotten that question a lot. As far as who I am and how I approach things, I would not have changed anything. The one thing that I would have changed, and we touched on it uh, a little bit ago, was I broke my elbow my rookie year. I was, I was on the way to have a monster year my rookie year when I broke that elbow. And, you know, Needless to say, had to have surgery down down the road. It gave me a few more problems. I had to have a few more surgeries. Um, if I if I look back on that career, uh, if I didn't break my elbow, oh my god, I, I wish I wish I'd known where I'd been now. I love that. So everything you achieved could have been on the next level. Yep. If you didn't have that injury, that's correct. That's correct. You know. Sure. And then, and then here was nothing too in the speech, and and here you are, you know, you know, being a a fan of the San Francisco Giants. It was absolutely hysterical playing in Candlestick Park. I mean, you know, Roger Craig, who was my manager, Al Rosen, who was my general manager, they told us when we came in, you are going to use this ballpark to our advantage. We're going to play night games. We're going to play when it's freaking miserable because the other team doesn't want to be there. And this is our home ballpark. And you would go up to the plate at Candlestick. I mean, catch one. I'm talking about catch one. And it was one of those miserable nights. And, you know, the right fielder would come running in on it, you know. And then the next day, it was one of them nice calm days. Whack, you catch the same ball. And it was 40 rows deep. And you go, oh, my God. This this place is hysterical. It's hysterical. But – Overall, it was a very difficult place for compet. I mean, even probably for a lot of, of the Giants, like that was not an easy place to play with the swirling winds, the, the no. wind coming off the ocean, the cold temperatures. Because Candlestick was a cold park to play in. Yep. Yep. It was cold. And then not only that, um, you know, being an infielder, uh, because the wind blew so much, they had to have something that had some weight to it. So our infield was crushed brick. And they had to, they hosed it down like three or four times a, a game, but it didn't really matter. I mean, it would, you know, you'd go down for a play and you come back up and it'd sandblast you and you had to hold your glove up. Or, you know, and these guys that stole bases and went in head first and all that, I mean, it just ripped their arms up. And I went in feet first. And up until the day I retired, I had scars on my knees and my ass from sliding that candlestick. Ugh. Rough. Uh, should the shift be outlawed in baseball? 
No, no, it shouldn't be outlawed. If if you're that dumb and you can't hit a ball the other way when eight guys are standing over there and you try to hit it through them, you're a moron and you don't work <laughs> at your craft. That's and I have this, I had this argument with so many people. I'm like, dude, they keep pitching you in because everybody's playing over there. How about this? How about if you back off the plate? Now that ball in is out over the plate and you go that way with it. And they're like, oh, uh, I can't do that. I can't. Well, then you're going to have to hit it through eight guys and you're still a moron. Do you think they'll get rid of the shift? I've heard that they might be. You know what? This commissioner that we have right now, he's doing everything to the detriment of baseball. There's nothing good that he's bringing to the table right now. I mean, all of the history of the baseball and all that, they're trying to change it. They're trying to make it a mansy pansy type of sport. No contact. Uh, you know, then, then you got electronics coming into it. They got these guys pressing buttons and somebody's got a microphone in their ear. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely terrible what they do in the sport. I just had the great Joe West on my podcast. Does this name ring a bell? And did he ever, I know did Joe he, well, did he ever I toss Joe you? Well. Oh, cowboy Joe. Did he ever toss you? No, Joe, Joe never tossed me. Joe and I actually had a pretty good understanding, but, uh, we were, <laughs> I'll give you a little story on Joe. You know, Joe's a, needless to say, a little uh, cranky at times. And uh, we were having just one of those games. It was a nine to eight game and a bunch of walks and, you know, four hours or whatever. And Joe's on first base with me. And, and he's just, he's just, I can't believe you guys can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. And I looked at him and I didn't even miss a beat. I said, Joe, if you don't like your job, quit. And he, he looked at me and he just put his head down. He's like, oh, I got it. All right. All right. I said, Joe, there's, Joe, there's no time limit in baseball, dude. All right. We're trying to get off the field here. It's just one of these games. Do you, do you hate the fact that they're trying to take that time away from the game? Yeah. Cause I, I don't like that. I, I, I like the slowdown of baseball. Yeah. I don't. So, so here's here's the thing, and and this is the common sense part of it. All right, let's say, and and I'll throw this one out there: Yankees and Red Sox. They always went three and a half, four hours because they all go three two in the count. They adjust their batting gloves. They step out ten million times. All right, if you think about it, when you go that extra hour, how many more commercials do they have on TV that you are getting paid for? as a major league owner or the MLB, why are you trying to speed up the game so that you don't get the commercials and you don't get the extra revenue that throws up a red flag. All right. Where's the extra revenue coming from? Is it from the TV package? Where's it coming from to the fact that you're trying to speed up the game and not get the extra revenue? Yeah. And I mean, the worst thing that can happen for major league baseball or you know, somebody that has a playoff platform like the NBA, like best out of five, best out of seven. The, yeah. the, the last thing the NBA or the baseball powers that be want is a sweep. They want yeah. that thing to keep going. They want that yeah. commercial and that TV revenue. Yeah, they want, it, they want it to go seven games, you know, in the playoffs. And look at it now. They've even added an extra round of playoffs. Not only do you – we never had wild cards. So, I mean, you know, if you didn't win your division, you, you went your butt on home, all right? Now they had the wild card come into play. They added the central division because we were only east and west back then. They added the central division. Then they added the wild card, and they were like, ooh, this is a good deal. We'll add wild card number two. And so, you know, they added a whole new round of playoffs, 
for the exact same reason I just got through telling you. It's extra revenue. Well, if you want the extra revenue, then why are you trying to speed up the games? When you think about the the showmanship of baseball, do you think it's gone too far? And I want to finish. Hold on. I remember hearing people come down on Griffey when he take BP with a hat on backwards back yeah. in back yeah. in 92, 93. I think Griffey's rookie season was 89, 90. I believe that's Does that sound right? Yeah, that's about right. Um, is it gone too far? Is it, is it's it, gone is it way too, too far. Yeah. Has, it I mean, has, hasn't it? I mean, you know, you, you hit a home run and you got 85 guys coming out the dugout and they're doing all kinds of craziness and they put a chain on you and, you know, then they put a mask or they put some stupid hat on you. What is this, like, the WWE? Yeah, exactly. It's like, what the hell is going on? You know, I mean, you know, and, and I, I mean, I kind of get it because these guys don't expect it. You know, we expected it back then. Hey, you wanted to be the guy that came up there and won the ball game, put the nail in the coffin, and, and you like point at your guys and go, that's for you right there. You know, we, we don't have to have all of this freaking celebration these 40 foot bat tosses and all that sort of stuff. I can tell you one thing. Somebody, somebody does that bat toss on me. I am making sure they're getting drilled the next time up. They will be wearing one in the ribs. <laughs> do do you, uh, Oh man, you just made me laugh. Do I lost? My <laughs> I had, I had, I had a, a great, Oh, um, if you don't want to answer, you don't have to, but we're just, we're just, we're just chatting ahead, here. Far away. Pete Rose. Yes or no. Yes, without a shadow of a doubt. All right, here's the trivia quiz for that. Behind that, okay? I had my best year in 1989, played every day, 162 games. I hit 333, went down the last day of the year with Tony Gwynn for the batting title. I had 196 hits that year. I didn't, I didn't get to 200, all right? Phenomenal year. To beat... Pete Rose's record. You have to get 200 hits for 21 straight years. Then you're still about 50 hits shy. It's amazing the streak that that man put together. And, you know, I mean, hey, look, we let, we let druggies in the sport. We let steroid users in the sport. You know, he gambled. Okay, now look what's going on. We have gambling in the sport as the game's going on. You can bet on the sport as the game's going on, and MLB is directly benefiting benefiting from it. But yet you won't let the best base hit artist ever into the Hall of Fame. It's ridiculous. It's a great way to put it. And they always say, well, maybe if you would just come off your high horse and apologize, well, what 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 do they expect out of the man? I just am like, based on his career, He's a Hall of Fame baseball player. Correct. 100%. Correct. Over 40, 4,300 hits or 4,100 Yeah, 4,200 hits. 4,200 hits. 4,256 or something like that. It'll never be touched, will it? Nope. Can it be touched? Put it this way. Not by anybody who's a modern-day player. There's no way. I mean, they, they 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 don't have the swing mechanics. Um... They don't have the concentration and the deep drive, you know. You know, I, I mean, we were we were of the opinion, hey, you get one, I need two. You get two, I need three. I get three, I need four. And you just kept 
pounding at it. I mean, and concentrating. When you had two, your focus got even smaller to get three. And when you got three, your focus even got smaller to get four. Now these guys, man, I mean, you know, they get one or two and they strike out once or twice and uh, the shit falls apart. So I don't know. I'm going to say it never gets touched. But again, every record's made to be broken. But when we're on the line of records, the Iron Man, is this a legitimate record and one to be honored? Or did this hurt the team in a lot of ways and should have never been in the equation, in your opinion? By far, one of the better things in the sport. You got a guy, you got a guy with the work ethic. You got a guy that showed up for work every day and wanted to be there every day. He wanted to be not only from the get-go, he wanted to be there at the end. By far, a record that should, oh my God, should stay in the record books, stay in the baseball history. But then again, that's another one that won't be touched. There's guys now that ask for days off. I'm like, you asked for a day off? I never asked for a day off. You got to be kidding me. Yeah, it's, I mean, I just had Tony Vandemore of Habitat Flats on the podcast and we, he, he got drafted. Um, but he was talking about how how duck guides won't even go duck hunting when they get a day off. And he's like, are you out of your freaking mind? Like, I, I'm going to go duck hunting. If I don't have to babysit a bunch of people on in a blind, I'm going hunting on my own. He goes, the guy today, they, they ask for days off and then they don't even go duck hunting on their days yeah. off. He goes, Chad, he goes, this was never in the equation when I was coming up. You know, he goes, never would I have ever imagined that. And he applied it to baseball, too. He's like, dude. The practices were my favorite part. I'd be I'd be doing things that I never got to do during the game, shagging balls in the gap. And he goes, my work ethic was just there. He goes, man, shit's changed a bunch in that oh. aspect in the game. Oh. And 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 we were talking about how it, it boils down to duck hunting, also. You know, and and uh, you know, in doing what I do for the Giants, you know, not only do I see the major league team at least once a month, but also see all of our minor league affiliates. And it's it's kind of funny. You know, when you go in there and you see the minor league guys, um, you know, I mean, I'll get there like I did when I was a player. I'll get there at one o'clock. You know, I'll put my uniform on. And if I if I look around, nobody's in the clubhouse. I'm like, I'm the hell with it. And I, I go get in the cage. I take, I don't know, 40, 50 swings, whatever. And then about 2.30, 3 o'clock, here they come. They start coming in, you know. And, you know, I'll walk up to a kid and I'm like, hey, you want to go get in the cage and work on some stuff? Yeah, no, I'll be down there in a little while. I'm like, okay, no wonder you're hitting 220, Jack. And I'm still a 300 hitter and I've already take 50 swings and I'm retired, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a weird mentality, man. It's it just, is. I don't know if it's because we, sh- that we, that we pamper people too much and that it's just like, we're so, we've gotten so soft in our approach to things of, I would do anything to be that guy that told Will Clark, no, I don't have time to go take BP. I got to get on my TikTok. I got to do a live feed here real quick. And I got to upload this picture to get a bunch of like, I would have done anything to be in the cage to be in just to be in rookie ball for one AB. I would have, I would have given my left nut for a cross checker to go, Chad, expect the phone call in the 63rd round on Sunday night from the giants. I would have went, are you serious? I'm going to have a big party 63rd round. I would have did anything to be drafted into the major leagues. You're, you're exactly, you're exactly correct. You're exactly correct. I mean, I, Hey, look, I just, I just shake my head sometimes. I'm like, well, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the difference in between, you know, some of these players and myself or, or yourself, you know, and I, I, and I mean this, completely serious. I mean, completely serious. And this is who I am. You know, when I did my, my wall of fame speech and all that sort of stuff, 
I told everybody in my speech, I said, I grew up competing. My dad made me compete in everything. And I, I threw this one at him. I said, there was no participation trophies. And as soon as I said that, the stands went crazy. They went bonkers because everybody's thinking it, but nobody's saying it. And so now it goes back to exactly what you're talking about. You know, and I tell these kids this, hey, look, you know, I'm here and I'm working. You're not working. And so guess what? I have the leg up on you. And so my way of looking at things, if I got the leg up on you, I'm not only going to beat you, but I'm going to beat you down. I'm going to stomp you. That's how I am. That is my nature. If I'm up three, nothing, I want to be up five, nothing. If I'm up five, nothing, I want to be up nine, nothing. When you got somebody down, you keep beating on them. That is being competitive. And that's what we're losing in the sport nowadays. And in life, because if there's anything worse, and I don't know if there is, than to give Joey the same award for ninth place that Jason got for first place is asinine because in 10 years, when Joey comes out of college and he has to get a real job, this life is a a mother you know what yep. and it will kick you and it will do exactly what you just said will clark it will kick you until you're down and yep. then just keep pouring on so if people want to sugarcoat it and go oh no it's cool you know you're the same level no you're not no you're right wake up wake up earlier get in the gym eat right feel better do this do this whatever it takes don't cheat don't sell yourself short just work no. harder work, work harder. harder yeah and that's what you did and i and i think that that's so well said in your speech um First off, it's an honor to have you on here. I've already said that. You already know how I feel about you and your career and going down to the Bay Area. I live in Reno, Tahoe. So if for any of you that don't know that, that's about a three and a half hour drive, four hours, I'd say, to get the candlestick when I was a kid. The new park is about three and a half hours, depending on traffic once you hit about Berkeley, because it can become a mess down there. <laughs> but I spent many hours in the car with my family driving down to watch Will Clark play. I've hunted with Ricky Henderson. I did the same thing when George Brett and Bo Jackson would come into Oakland Alameda stadium i go watch ricky and dave henderson and dave stewart and a bunch of the a's play against the royals and brett saberhagen and frank white and dick hauser was their coach at the time but will what you did and how you influenced my brothers clinton clay myself how we still talk about you all the time um when we get a chance to watch your at bats and when i showed him that video of your garage i just want you to know that when you're out there doing what you did back in the 80s and 90s and then retired as a cardinal in 2000 but you're still a true giant and what you continue to do today as a shooting sport ambassador, as a duck hunter, as a, a conservationist, as a hunter, as a whole, as a family man, as an associate pro to the Giants organization, I want you to know that everywhere there is people being touched by you and influenced by you. And I think it's unreal that you have that stance of being able to spread that love and spread that word and show people, hey, with work ethic and passion, you can achieve it because you weren't you were not born with a contract in your hand and an automatic play in the major leagues. Okay. You were yeah. given every opportunity that every kid is in this country. And I think it's awesome that you, that you still take the time to come on to shows like this and spread the good word of what work ethic means and what passion can get you. So thank you, Will Clark. It is my pleasure. And uh, you know, you and I have had a chance to, you know, talk and share videos and stuff that, like that here lately. Uh, I just wanted to let you know, that believe it or not, I have been in Reno twice this year. Uh, you and I hadn't had a chance to touch base beforehand, 
Otherwise, I'd have invited you, you know, to come out and have some dinner and all that sort of stuff. We get a chance to sit and talk in person. That will not happen in the future, and we will be in a duck blind or goose blind or something like that together one of these days soon. I cannot wait for that. It's an honor to call you a friend. And last question, 23, Mississippi State behind you. Yes. What's the story with 22? So I was 23 my whole uh, amateur career uh, and through Mississippi State. I signed with the San Francisco Giants, as you said, in the draft. Uh, we did our press conference, and our equipment manager, I love him to death, Mike Murphy, he um, he had an old Jack Clark jersey. So I just held up, you know, Clark 22, one of those numbers. I go play minor league ball. I make the team the next year like we talked about, and I went up to Murph, and I go, hey, Murph, can uh, – can I have 23? That was a number I had, you know, when I was in college in my amateur career, he goes, no, that's Jose Uribe's number. He said, you got to go talk to Jose. And so I went up to Jose and I'm like, Jose, he? I said, you know, that was my number. And I, Oh no, man, that's my number. And I was like, <laughs> well, I guess So I go back to Murph and I'm like, Murph, Jose won't give me the number. And he goes, he goes, well, I still got 22. I said, give me 22. I said, that's fine. I said, that's only one behind it. And, you know, <laughs> till this day I laugh and giggle because you know, I mean, you, we even talked about it a minute ago uh, was was like my nickname, Will the Thrill. Bob Brenly, Mike Kruko gave it to me and it just stuck. And people now till this day, they either call it. They, they don't even call me Will. They're like, hey, Thrill or hey, Thriller or something like that. And then now having 22, uh, my ranch is the double deuce ranch. And a lot of stuff that I do in my life is double deuce. And it, it's pretty it's pretty neat. Well, it's synonymous with you now. I've had Kruko on here. I eat lunch with Kruko. Um, one of his favorite stories I tell him is my baseball coach at UNLV, which was Matt Williams' head coach, and Donovan Osborne of the of the St. Louis yeah, Cardinals, yeah. the great the great Fred Dalimore, who was at my house for dinner last week. Um, in 1993, after he signed me and I went down there, I got picked off in Stockton against University of the Pacific, and um, he called me the great the biggest recruiting mistake he ever made. So that's what I'm like. <laughs> That's <laughs> so oh I should have brought it in here. He came out here and, and the equipment manager who's still there. I can't believe Larry is still at UNLV got me a Dallimore number 13 Jersey in both home white and on the road red. And coach came out here and took his Sharpie and signed to the biggest recruiting mistake I ever made, Fred <laughs> Dallimore. So I got a shadow box being made with it right now. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But that's Kru funny. Kruko knows Fred Dallimore because Freddie's son, Brian, was an All-American at Stanford for the Cardinals, was drafted by you guys. His first hit in the majors was a grand slam. Don't You got a uh, Brian Dallimore. You Brian can go Dallimore. look up. I remember Brian Dallimore. That was Freddie's son, and Kruko and Kite called that. And then uh, Kruko just happened to to be walking through the tunnel uh, when Freddie and Brian were coming out of the locker room after the Grand Slam after the game that night, and they become fast friends. So now Freddie lives here with me. Uh, Kruko lives up here by me. Yeah. So yeah. we all meet for lunch once in a while. It's an oh, awesome, that's awesome time. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah, it's cool. Kruko's the man. I, I will go down and saying this, and I tell all my friends this. Kruk and Kuyp are the best to ever do it in the, in by the far, box. By far. They're I so them. good. I love them. They're so good. You know, it, it used to be back in the day, you know, Hodges and Simmons and all that, yeah. but that was back in the day. But modern day, those two are by far the best. Speaking of that, rest in peace, Vin Scully. I guarantee you, Vin Scully, if we went back, I bet you he's got some great Will, Will Clark calls. I guarantee you he's got well, some great you, ones. If you, uh, if you go back to uh, 89 NLCS game one, 
Vin Scully call that game. So if you want to watch the if you want to watch the highlights on on YouTube or whatever, you will hear Vin Scully talking about Will Clark. And you were the MVP of that series. Yep. And so you're saying that Kevin Mitchell was the MVP of the World Series? No, Kevin Mitchell was the MVP of the of regular the league, season of the National of the, League. Of the National League. He hit he hit 47 that year and had I don't know 120 something RBIs. And then and then I I led I led like I said I went down the last day of the season for the batting title with with Tony Gwynn, but I led the National League in run scored that year because I was on base in front of Kevin when he was driving me in. He he was swinging. He was hot that year. His oh yeah oh yeah. Uh, hit, Boogie Bear. So, hey, that's that's for another podcast. I got so many stories. We need we need to do this again later on, and 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 I'll I'll delve you into some of the some of the crazy stories. I want to do that, and I want to talk about how special Tony Gwynn was to the game. Yeah. Yeah. How sad it is that he's gone. Because something that you just mentioned is that the way he passed is kind of the same way that Kevin Mitchell's brother Tommy passed yeah. with with the chew. Yeah. Um, with yep. the mouth, with the mouth stuff. So Will Clark, my brother, thank you so much. I can't wait to get in the duck blind. I got a package headed your way. I can't wait for you to get it. And um, let's get together soon. The great Will Clark right here at the foul life podcast. I can't wait to see you, buddy. Chad, look forward to it. My friend, tell your family, we said hello. And uh, as always shoot straight, my friend. Yes, sir. Shoot straight. Be safe out there this duck season. This has been another episode of the foul life. The great Will Clark, Will the Thrill, double deuce on the San Francisco Giants. Go USA. God bless America. Y'all be safe out there. Thank you very much. Hey,